Book the Third, Part Eleven of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the Third, Part Eleven. Somerset was deeply engaged with his draughtsmen and builders during the three following days, and scarcely entered the occupied wing of the castle. At his suggestion, Paula had agreed to have the works executed as such operations were carried out in old times before the advent of contractors. Each trade required in the building was to be represented by a master tradesman of that denomination, who should stand responsible for his own section of labour, and for no other, Somerset himself as chief technicist working out his designs on the spot. By this means, the thoroughness of the workmanship would be greatly increased in comparison with the modern arrangement, whereby a nominal builder, seldom present, who can certainly know no more than one trade intimately and well, and who often does not know that, undertakes the whole. But notwithstanding its manifest advantages to the proprietor, the plan added largely to the responsibilities of the architect, who, with his master mason, master carpenter, master plumber, and what not, had scarcely a moment to call his own. Still, the method being upon the face of it the true one, Somerset supervised with a will. But there seemed to float across the court to him from the inhabited wing an intimation that things were not as they had been before, that an influence adverse to himself was at work behind the ashlard face of the inner wall which confronted him. Perhaps this was because he never saw Paula at the windows, or heard her footfall in that half of the building given over to himself and his myrmidons. There was really no reason other than a sentimental one why he should see her. The uninhabited part of the castle was almost an independent structure, and it was quite natural to exist for weeks in this wing without coming in contact with residents in the other. A more pronounced cause than vague surmise was destined to perturb him, and this in an unexpected manner. It happened one morning that he glanced through a local paper while waiting at the Lord Contark Arms for the pony carriage to be brought round in which he often drove to the castle. The paper was two days old but to his unutterable amazement he read there in a paragraph which ran as follows. We are informed that a marriage is likely to be arranged between Captain de Stancy of the Royal Horse Artillery, only surviving son of Sir William de Stancy, Baronet, and Paula, only daughter of the late John Power, Esquire, MP, of Stancy Castle. Somerset dropped the paper and stared out of the window. Fortunately for his emotions, the horse and carriage were at this moment brought to the door, so that nothing hindered Somerset in driving off to the spot at which he would be soonest likely to learn what truth, or otherwise, there was in the newspaper report. From the first he doubted it, and yet how should it have got there? Such strange rumours like paradoxical maxims generally include a portion of truth. Five days had elapsed since he last spoke to Paula. Reaching the castle, he entered his own quarters as usual, and, after setting the draughtsman to work, walked up and down, pondering how he might best see her without making the paragraph the ground of his request for an interview. For if it were a fabrication, such a reason would wound her pride and her own honour towards him, and if it were partly true, he would certainly do better in leaving her alone than in reproaching her. It would simply amount to a proof that Paula was an arrogant coquette, in his meditation he stood still, closely scanning one of the jam-stones of a doorless entrance, as if to discover where the old hinge-hook had entered the stonework. He heard a footstep behind him, 
and looking round saw Paula standing by. She held a newspaper in her hand. The spot was one quite hemmed in from observation, a fact of which she seemed to be quite aware. I have something to tell you, she said, something important. But you are so occupied with that old stone that I am obliged to wait. It is not true, surely, he said, looking at the paper. No, look here, she said, holding up the sheet. It was not what he had supposed, but a new one, the local rival to that which had contained the announcement and was still damp from the press. She pointed, and he read, We are authorised to state that there is no foundation whatever for the assertion of our contemporary that a marriage is likely to be arranged between Captain de Stancy and Miss Power of Stancy Castle. Somerset pressed her hand. It disturbed me, he said, though I did not believe it. It astonished me as much as it disturbed you, and I said this contradiction at once. How could it have got there? She shook her head. You have not the least knowledge? Not the least. I wish I had. It was not from any friends of de Stancy's, or himself? It was not. His sister has ascertained beyond doubt that he knew nothing of it. Oh, now don't say any more to me about the matter. I'll find out how it got into the paper. Not now. Any future time will do. I have something else to tell you. I hope the news is as good as the last, he said, looking into her face with anxiety. For though that face was blooming, it seemed full of a doubt as to how her next information would be taken. Oh yes, it is good, because everybody says so. We're going to take a delightful journey. My new created uncle, as he seems, and I, and my aunt, and perhaps Charlotte, if she's well enough, are going to Nice, and other places about there. To Nice, said Somerset, rather blankly. And I must stay here? Why, of course you must, considering what you have undertaken, she said, looking with saucy composure into his eyes. My uncle's reason for proposing the journey just now is that he thinks the alterations will make residence here dusty and disagreeable during the spring. The opportunity of going with him is too good a one for us to lose, as I've never been there. I wish I was going to be one of the party. What do you wish about it? She shook her head impenetrably. A woman may wish some things she does not care to tell. Are you really glad you are going, dearest? As I must call you just once, said the young man, gazing earnestly into her face which struck him as looking far too rosy and radiant to be consistent with ever so little regret at leaving him behind. I take great interest in foreign trips, especially to the shores of the Mediterranean, and everybody makes a point of getting away when the house is turned out of the window. But you do feel a little sadness, such as I should feel if our positions were reversed? I think you ought not to have asked that so incredulously, she murmured. We can be near each other in spirit when our bodies are far apart, can we not? Her tone grew softer, and she drew a little closer to his side with a slightly nestling motion as she went on. May I be sure that you will not think unkindly of me when I am absent from your sight, and not begrudge me any little pleasure because you are not there to share it with me? May you? Can you ask it? As for me, I shall have no pleasure to be begrudged or otherwise. The only pleasure I have is, as you well know, in you. When you are with me, I am happy. When you are away, I take no pleasure in anything. I don't deserve it. I have no right to disturb you so, she said very gently. 
but I have given you some pleasure, have I not? A little more pleasure than pain, perhaps? You have, and yet... But I don't accuse you, dearest. Yes, you have given me pleasure. One truly pleasant time was when we stood together in the summer-house on the evening of the garden party, and you said you liked me to love you. Yes, it was a pleasant time, she returned thoughtfully. How the rain came down and formed a gauze between us and the dancers, did it not? And how afraid we were, at least I was, lest anybody should discover us there, and how quickly I ran in after the rain was over. Yes, said Somerset, I remember it. But no harm came of it to you, and perhaps no good will will come of it to me. Do not be premature on your conclusion, sir, she said archly. If you really do feel for me only half of what you say, we shall, you will make some good come of it, in some way or other. Dear Paula, now I believe you and can bear anything. Then we will say no more, because, as you recollect, we agreed not to go too far. No expostulations, for we are going to be practical young people. Besides, I won't listen if you utter them. I simply echo your words and say, I too believe you. I must go. Have faith in me, and don't magnify trifles light as air. I think I understand you, and if I do, it will make a great difference in my conduct. You will have no cause to complain. Then you must not understand me so much as to make much difference, for your conduct as my architect is perfect. But I must not linger longer, though I wish you to know this news from my very own lips. Bless you for it. When do you leave? The day after tomorrow. So early. Does your uncle guess anything? Do you wish him to be told just yet? Yes to the first, no to the second. I may write to you. On business, yes, it will be necessary. How can you speak so at a time of parting? Now, George, you see I say George and not Mr. Somerset, and you may draw your own inference. Don't be so morbid in your reproaches. I have informed you that you may write, or still better, telegraph, since the wire is so handy, on business. Well, of course, it is for you to judge whether you will add postscripts of another sort. There, you make me say more than a woman ought, because you are so obtuse and literal. Good afternoon. Good-bye. This will be my address. He handed him a slip of paper and flitted away. Though he saw her again after this, it was during the bustle of preparation, when there was always a third person present usually in the shape of that breathing refrigerator, her uncle. Hence the few words that passed between them were of the most formal description, and chiefly concerned the restoration of the castle, and a church at Nice designed by him which he wanted her to inspect. They had to leave by an early afternoon train, and Somerset was invited to lunch on that day. The morning was occupied by a long business consultation in the studio with Mr Power and Mrs Goodman on what rooms were to be left locked up, what left in charge of the servants, and what thrown open to the builders and workmen under the surveillance of Somerset. At present, the work consisted mostly of repairs to existing rooms, so as to render those habitable which had long been used only as stores for lumber. Paula did not appear during this discussion, but when they were all seated in the dining hall, she came in dressed for the journey, and, to outward appearance, with blithe anticipation at its prospect blooming from every feature. Next to her came Charlotte de Stancy, still with some of the pallor of an invalid, but wonderfully brightened up, as Somerset thought, by the prospect of a visit to a delightful shore. 
It might have been this, and it might have been that Somerset's presence had a share in the change. It was in the hall when they were in the bustle of leave-taking that there occurred the only opportunity for the two or three private words with Paula to which his star treated him on that last day. His took the hasty form of, You will write soon? Telegraphing will be quicker, she answered in the same low tone, and whispering, Be true to me, turned away. How unreasonable he was. In addition to those words, warm as they were, he would have preferred a little paleness of cheek or trembling of lip, instead of the bloom and the beauty which sat upon her undisturbed maidenhood, to tell him that in some slight way she suffered at his loss. Immediately after this they went to the carriages waiting at the door. Somerset, who had in a measure taken charge of the castle, accompanied them and saw them off, much as if they were his visitors. He stepped in, a general adieu was spoken, and he was gone. While the carriages rolled away, he ascended to the top of the tower, where he saw them lessen to spots on the road and turn the corner out of sight. The chances of arrival seemed to grow in proportion as Paula receded from his side, but he could not have answered why. He had bidden her and her relatives adieu on her own doorstep, like a privileged friend of the family. Montestancy had scarcely seen her since the play-night. That the silence into which the captain appeared to have sunk was the placidity of conscious power was scarcely probable. Yet that adventitious aids existed for Destancy he could not deny. The link formed by Charlotte between Destancy and Paula, much as he liked the ingenuous girl, was one that he could have wished away. It constituted a bridge of access to Paula's inner life and feelings which nothing could rival, except that one fact which, as he firmly believed, did actually rival it, giving him faith and hope, his own primary occupation of Paula's heart. Moreover, Mrs. Goodman would be an influence favourable to himself and his cause during the journey. There, to be sure, to set against her, there was the phlegmatic and obstinate Abner Power, in whom, apprised by those subtle media of intelligence which lovers possess, he fancied he saw no friend. Somerset remained but a short time at the castle that day. The light of its chambers had fled, the gross grandeur of the dictatorial towers oppressed him, and the studio was hateful. He remembered a promise made long ago to Mr. Woodwell of calling upon him some afternoon, and a visit which had not much attractiveness in it at other times recommended itself now, through being the one possible way open to him of hearing Paula named and her doings talked of. Hence, in walking back to Markton, instead of going up the high street, he turned aside into the unfrequented footway that led to the minister's cottage. Mr. Woodwell was not indoors at the moment of his call, and Somerset lingered at the doorway and cast his eyes around. It was a house which typified the drearier tenets of its occupier with great exactness. It stood upon its spot of earth without any natural union with it. No mosses disguised the stiff, straight line where wall met earth. Not a creeper softened the aspect of the bare front. The garden walk was strewn with loose clinkers from the neighbouring foundry, which rolled under the pedestrian's foot and jolted his soul out of him before he reached the porchless door. But all was clean and clear and dry. Whether Mr. Woodwell was personally responsible for this condition of things, there was not time to closely consider. 
for Somerset perceived the minister coming up the walk towards him. Mr. Woodwell welcomed him heartily, and yet with the mien of a man whose mind has scarcely dismissed some scene which has preceded the one that confronts him. What that scene was soon transpired. I've had a busy afternoon, said the minister, as they walked indoors, or rather an exciting afternoon. Your client at Stancy Castle, whose uncle, as I imagine you know, has so unexpectedly returned, has left with him today for the south of France, and I wished to ask her before her departure some questions as to how a charity organised by her father was to be administered in her absence. But I have been very unfortunate. She could not find time to see me at her own house, and I awaited her at the station, all to no purpose, owing to the presence of her friends. Well, well, I must see if a letter will find her. Somerset asked if anybody of the neighbourhood was there to see them off. Yes, that was the trouble of it. Captain de Stancy was there, and quite monopolised her. I don't know what tis coming to, and perhaps I have no business to inquire, since she is scarcely a member of our church now. Who could have anticipated the daughter of my old friend John Power, developing into the ordinary gay woman of the world as she has done? Who could have expected her to associate with people who show contempt for their maker's intentions by flippantly assuming other characters than those in which he created them? You mistake her, murmured Somerset, in a voice which he vainly endeavoured to attune to philosophy. Miss Power has some very rare and beautiful qualities in her nature, though I confess I tremble, fear, lest the distancy influence should be too strong. Sir, it is already. Do you remember my telling you that I thought the force of her surroundings would obscure the pure daylight of her spirit, as a monkish window of colourful images attenuates the rays of God's sun? I do not wish to indulge in rash surmises, but her oscillation from her family creed of Calvinistic truth towards the traditions of the Dostanzis has been so decided, though so gradual, that, well, I may be wrong. But what? said the young man sharply. I sometimes think she will take to her as husband, the present representative of that impoverished line, Captain Dostanzi, which she may easily do, if she chooses, as his behaviour today showed. He was probably there on account of his sister, said Somerset, trying to escape the mental picture of farewell gallantries bestowed on Paula. It was hinted at in the papers the other day. And it was flatly contradicted. Yes. Well, we shall see in the Lord's good time. I can do no more for her. And now, Mr. Somerset, pray take a cup of tea. The revelations of the minister depressed Somerset a little, and he did not stay long. As he went to the door, Woodwell said, There is a worthy man, the deacon of our chapel, Mr. Havel, who would like to be friendly with you. Poor man, since the death of his wife, he seems to have something on his mind, some trouble which my words will not reach. If ever you are passing his door, please give him a look in. He fears that calling on you might be an intrusion. Somerset did not clearly promise, and went his way. The minister's allusion to the announcement of the marriage reminded Somerset that she had expressed a wish to know how the paragraph came to be inserted. The wish had been carelessly spoken, but he went to the newspaper office to make inquiries on the point. The reply was unexpected. The reporter informed his questioner that in returning from the theatricals at which he was present, he shared a fly with a gentleman who assured him that such an alliance was certain, so obviously did it recommend itself to all concerned as a means of strengthening both families. 
The gentleman's knowledge of the past was so precise that the reporter did not hesitate to accept his assertion. He was a man who had seen a great deal of the world, and his face was noticeable for the seams and scars on it. Somerset recognised Paula's uncle in the portrait. Hostilities, then, were beginning. The paragraph had been meant as the first slap. Taking her abroad was the second. End of Book the Third, Part 11